Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. Buddha at the Gas Pump is an ongoing series of interviews with spiritually awakening people. I've conducted hundreds of them now, and if this is new to you and you'd like to watch previous ones, please go to batgap.com and um, check out the past interviews menu where you'll see all the previous ones archived in various ways. Um, this show is made possible by the support of appreciative listeners and viewers, and so if you appreciate it and feel like supporting it in any amount, um, go to the any page on the website where you'll see a PayPal button. My guest today is Paul Selig. Paul is considered to be one of the most one of the foremost spiritual channels working today. In his breakthrough works of channeled literature, including "I Am the Word" and "The Book of Truth." He has recorded an extraordinary program for personal and planetary evolution as humankind awakens to its own divine nature. Paul was born in New York City and received his master's degree from Yale. A spiritual experience in 1987 left him clairvoyant. As a way to gain a context for what he was experiencing, beginning to experience, he studied a form of energy healing and began to hear for his clients. Described as a medium for the living, Paul's abilities have been featured on ABC News Nightline, Fox News, The Biography Channel, The Unexplained, Guyam's TV's Beyond Belief, and the documentary film Paul and the Word. Paul offers channeled workshops internationally. He serves on the faculty of the Omega Institute, the Kripalu Center, and the Esalen Institute. Also a noted playwright and educator, he served on the faculty of NYU for over 25 years. He directed the MFA and creative writing program at Goddard College for many years, and he now serves on the college's board of trustees. He lives in New York City, where he maintains a private practice as an intuitive and conducts frequent live stream seminars. Does that sound familiar, Paul? Yep. <laughs> so, thank you for doing this. So, Paul, I, I thought it might be useful to kind of start with the ABCs. Probably most of the people in my audience have heard of channeling, or, you know, tuned into it, watched some channelers and all, but let's presume that a few of them haven't. And for their benefit, and uh, also for your particular definition of it, why don't you define channeling for us? Well, I mean, when I'm channeling, I'm, I'm taking dictation. I'm hearing clairaudiently um, information from another source and I'm actually relaying it as I hear it. I, I make the distinction between channeling, which I feel is really direct transmission and dictation from, say, inspired work, where you're sort of inspired by spirit and then you do something with it, which is what most artists do. I say that I'm a radio. So as a radio, I'm taking a broadcast and I'm relaying the broadcast. Um, I work with guides and they're They've now dictated, you know, six books through me, um, and the books require no editing. I mean, it's the, the verbal trans the transcriptions of, of the oral dictations become the books. Um, so that's my job. And then when I work as a as a psychic or as an intuitive, I'm the radio that's tuning into you, and I'm hearing your broadcast. So I look at channeling in a very distinct way as sort of taking dictation. It's it's stenography, and, and really not that much more. So when you're doing it either um, as a channel or as a psychic and you get this dictation or, the, or these messages or these thoughts, is it very similar to your ordinary thoughts except it's stuff that you wouldn't ordinarily think that you're just, that's just kind of coming to you and so you know that it's not from you, it's from them? I, I, this, this is sort of how it happens for me. I, 
before I work, I, I kind of imagine that I'm climbing into the back seat of the car and I'm turning the wheel over to the guide that I work with, the guides. It's a collective. And I'll hear one phrase repeated incessantly. And it may not mean anything to me. I mean, I may hear they all need to know or you all come and decide. And whatever it is, I just finally I have to give, ver- give voice to that one phrase. Once I speak the one phrase, everything tumbles out right on top of it. And I don't stop until they say at the end, stop now, please. Or they've been known to say, you know, period, 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 when they're at the end of their point. So all I'm really doing is keeping up with the dictation. Um, there's a, a cadence and a language choice that's quite different from my own. The sentence structure is different than my own, and I recognize it at this point, and I'm familiar with it, which is why I, I trust it. But, I mean, I've never called anybody my fellows in my life, and the guys will say, you and your fellows, you know, it's just not my stuff. It's not how I, I would use the word in a sentence myself. Yeah, and you know a fair amount about words and sentences, having taught creative writing and been a playwright. <laughs> um, so you alluded to some experience in 1987 or something that left you. What was that? Well, I mean, it's, it, it's you know, I, I'm, I'm almost at this point uncomfortable with that story only because I'm, I'm not so fond of my own narrative at this point, And I have to live through this bio that people send out about me. And I, I kind of don't relate to it much anymore. But the story is I was, it was 1987. I was about maybe a year out of graduate school. I, about four months before I hit a real wall. Um, I mean, I had a list of things I thought I had to do in the world that would make me okay. And I got the whole list and I wasn't okay. And I was bottoming out in a hotel in Minneapolis where I was working on an opera And I'd heard a voice telling me to get my act together. I'd started praying in that hotel. Three days later, I heard, for the first time in my life, three days later, I heard a voice getting my act together. I did what they said. And then I heard there was this thing happening a few months later called the Harmonic Convergence. It was 1987. And, you know, I had been raised an atheist. So I was hearing people say, oh, there's this thing happening and people are going to be waking up. And I had just come from a place of thinking there was no such thing as a universal power or God or whatever you wanted to call it, to perhaps thinking that there was, which was radical enough. And then I thought, well, if there is this thing and people are going to be waking up, why would it say no? You know, why would it not want you to wake up? So I went up to the roof of this building that I was living in the night before this supposed celestial event. And I asked to be woken up and somebody had, and I tried to teach myself how to meditate for the first time. That was what I did up on the roof. Somebody had given me a crystal and somebody gave me a mantra and I thought you needed the props and the mantras to do this. So I sat there and I ended up having an experience of energy and I don't really know what happened. And to this day, I say I may have been hyperventilating. I really don't know, but it was an experience of energy moving from the base of my being up, 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 up and out through the top of my head. And it, kind of, and it kind of left me sort of frozen and rocking. My mouth was frozen and I wasn't here. And I was just sort of swaying in this energy. And I, I feel in retrospect that given where I came from, I needed something that was somewhat palpable for me to trust. I think it was helpful for me to have something that I could know. 
And I started seeing little lights around people after that. I don't know if it's tied to the event or not, but suddenly there were these fireflies going off around people. And so, you know, I'd, I'd heard something clairaudiently. I had felt something, which is clairsentience. And now I was sitting with a light show and my life changed. It's the only way I can say it. It was enough proof to keep me going. And 30 years later, I'm still here and still with the work. That's cool. There's an Indian saying that uh, for the wise, only an indication is needed. So I think some of us need more of like a two by four across the. <laughs> I did. You know, I did. I mean, I, you know, people said it sounded like a spontaneous Kundalini awakening or Shakti power. I mean, I know what these things are. My favorite definition, somebody said it sounds like a soul awakening. And I like that because in retrospect, that's kind of what it felt like. Like I was, I was being, you know, acknowledged in some other way beyond what I had known thus far that was yeah. helpful. It was helpful. That's all I know. Nice. You know, having interviewed so many people, I've heard so many stories and, and so many, in so many cases, it almost seems like someone has been blessed by some higher beings or higher power or something. They weren't looking for this. They weren't anticipating this in particular, but something happens kind of like, Paul on the road to Damascus, you know, they're just kind of bopping along on the on the donkey and all of a sudden this huge thing happens to them. And, and in retrospect, they feel like it was a blessing from God or a blessing from angels or some higher higher beings or higher source or something. I mean, do you get that feeling yourself now looking back? I don't know what to think of it, to be honest with you. I know that I... When I look back at that time in my life, it was a real uprooting. I mean, I, you know, was letting go of an identity that I was very attached to without knowing that I was doing it. And I was not suddenly not taking drugs or drinking or doing any of those things anymore. And I was suddenly believing there might be this thing called God because yeah. I'd started praying and I heard a voice. It was weird. So I don't know where to place it. I place it in the context of a series of things that happened in a somewhat brief period of time that led me to what I do now. I, I don't know if I was blessed or tapped by something else or if I was just truthfully at a place of such willingness. I got to say, I went up to the roof believing that such a thing could actually happen. And that's a kind of innocence that I don't know if I've ever had again, but I believed it could. And now every other week you hear some cosmic event and there's some portal opening up and I just, okay, okay, maybe so. I try not to be cynical about it. But at that time and at that moment in my personal history or narrative, I was really ready. It was like somebody, you know, burned a hole in the map that I had been on and suddenly I was elsewhere in yeah. this experience of, of being alive. And, and that hasn't changed, truthfully. It's not been graceful, but that hasn't changed. Yeah, I mean, you say it hasn't been graceful. Did you sort of have to be dragged into it kicking and screaming, or, or did your innocence kind of con continue along and you acquiesced fairly readily? I think I was fortunate in that, in my case, I was brought up with no religious training. You know, I had maybe a half a year or something in like fifth or sixth grade when I had some nuns in school and I was taken out promptly. But I, you know, that was an Upper West Side New York school. There wasn't, there was nothing really terribly religious happening that I recall. So I didn't know this stuff and I wasn't prejudiced. I was also 
you know, coming awake at a time of, of tremendous drama. I mean, I was suddenly back in New York after three years in school in New Haven in the midst of the AIDS epidemic where half the people I knew were dying. And it was an extraordinary experience and a terrifying one in many ways. And so what I did, you know, first of all, people sent me to an energy healer because suddenly Paul was seeing lights around people and believing in God. And I'd had platinum blonde Billy Idol hair that I'd gotten rid of. And I was like, oh, boy, what are we going to do with this guy? This makes no sense. I was this rock and roll playwright. But I went to this energy healer who and I later got the courage to say, can I study this? I thought only, and this was back in the day before everybody and their brother was a Reiki master. This was 30 years ago. And there was this, and I studied with this woman um, and I was volunteering at the center for people who were living with life challenging illness. And that's when my clear audience kicked in. When I had my hands on people, I started to hear things for them. If I had my hand in your chest and I heard the name Abby, I learned to say, who's Abby? And you might say, my sister, my mother, my wife, my my cat. And as that kept getting confirmed, I began to trust it. But it, the, the innocence that I had was was challenged by this reality that I was living in, which was was not easy. I was very poor and I couldn't write for some reason. You know, I've been prolific when I was a rock and roll playwright. And here I was now going, I don't know how to do this anymore. And I was having to sort of learn just on a human level how to take care of myself after a life of having been a student and not knowing how to do that. I mean, I was so grandiose when I was a kid that I never learned to drive because I assumed somebody would be driving me, you know? I mean, it's, it's fairly delusional, yeah. Somebody said I'm an enneagram. This guy, my friend Russ Hudson recently said, you're an enneagram. I think I'm a, four, I'm a five or something like that. Anyway, it's, it's, it's part of my type, I guess, if you believe in those things. So anyway, I, um, I, I was challenged by my entirety of experience, but I kept with this stuff. And it continued to develop. And I was working very, very quietly for years. I had a group that met in my apartment for 18 years while I was going off to teach at NYU and running this grad program off at Goddard. You know, it was what I did for myself. That's nice to develop quietly like that, because a lot of people have some kind of spiritual breakthrough and they just put up a shingle right away. You know, I want to teach. And, you know, you kind of went through an apprenticeship, you could say, for 18 years. Yeah, I was told, you know, it's funny. I was told by... I met some woman and when I was 30 years old in, in, in Provincetown, she grabbed my palm and she said, you've got a whole other career at, at around age 48 and you, you've got a second lifeline. And I do a second lifeline. You've got to follow this other path. And this other person who I met around that time said, you know, this work that you're doing now is going to become public, but not until you're around 48, 50 years old. Mm-hmm. She said, you've been veiled for your own protection. And at the time, I was sort of peeved about that because I thought, well, why not do this? But I wouldn't have been able to handle it. I know it. You know, yeah. I cared far too much about what other people thought of me. And I, 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 and I had an ego. And I, I probably, looking back at that time, had an investment in being special that I don't have in the same way anymore. I don't think I'm special. And I think that's a terrible trap that people can yeah. fall into in this work. Um, so, yeah, it was, I'm a, I was on a slow burn for a very long time. And only when the guides began dictating books did I 
come out of the closet and leave my old life. Mm -hmm. I find that very interesting because, um, you know, someone used the term premature immaculation that uh, a lot of times, you know, people have some kind of awakening and they, and they just want to start teaching as I, as I said earlier, and it proves to be difficult, very difficult for them. And in some cases it leads to a, a serious downfall. And I know in some of the more ancient traditions um, that once you have some kind of awakening, you don't just rush out and teach you, you percolate for a decade or something until you're deemed, you know, ready to do it. Well, I worked in my apartment, you know, I had a little group that met once a week, people would put 10 or 20 bucks in the basket. And we'd sit there and we'd be in the energy. And I did this up until, I don't know, early 2000 or something. It's very recently that the group stopped and we still connect once in a while and meet and do our work. But for me, it was the it was the laboratory for the work and my abilities continued to change as I worked. I didn't start lecturing in channel until 2008, around the time I finally quit smoking. I was a heavy smoker. When that was gone, all of a sudden my work changed entirely. And, um, and, and the work that I do now became, became present. Yeah. As a matter of fact, I heard you say in some interview that the, the guides sort of said, okay, Paul, time to kick that habit because we can't really work with you anymore. It's, it's, it's holding you back or something. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly what happened. I mean, I used to channel and smoke out the window during breaks. You know, it was crazy, but I didn't care. It was my apartment. I could do what I wanted. Yeah. And I mean, I, 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 I went through a, small, a short period in my early 30s where I, I started doing public groups and people were coming because the energy was so palpable and so high. And it was heady for me. Yeah. And then I ended up sort of breaking with my mentors and teachers, and I just didn't want to have anything to do with it anymore. The guides that I work with brought through this attunement to this energy that they called the word, you know. And I thought that was the craziest thing I'd ever heard. I mean, I, you know, I, heard, I, I started hearing in meditation um, Jerusalem Bible. And I finally went to a bookstore. I said, is there something called a Jerusalem Bible? And there, there is. And it's a very beautiful translation from the Aramaic. It's not the Thee Thou King James Version. It was a very simple thing. And I took it home and I said, okay, now what? And I heard read John aloud. And I did for two nights. I sat there in bed and I read the thing aloud. And then the next group I did, they said, we're going to bring through the energy of the word. And they brought through this attunement, which is still the attunement that they've used all these years. But I balked at it initially because my teachers hadn't taught it to me. I didn't know what I was doing. It was too far out. And I had gotten very fed up with the new age, you know, as it was at that time. I mean, it was ridiculous. You'd hear things like it's pretty loopy. It was very loopy. And, um, and, and there wasn't tremendous depth. And, um, I decided I wanted to go off and write plays for a little while and have a relationship. And I did those things. And actually it was after nine 11, I started my group again and I never stopped. That was when everything, then everything just, it's just been consistent ever since. Wow. One more retrospective question, and then we'll, we'll move on. Um, did you have anything in your, I know you said you were kind of a, raised an atheist, but was there anything in your childhood which presaged this sort of development? Yeah. A couple of things, but there's something distinct, and I'm, I'm still questioning it. But it was, I was about five years old. 
four or five. My brother was in the room and he was in the crib and he's two years younger. So that's how I date the room and the time. He was in a little tiny crib. So he was an infant or fairly small. But there was this, I have a very distinct memory of this being hovering over my bed. Um, and I was watching it from pillow height. My head was to the right and it was wearing something that was golden brocade. That's all I knew. And it was ornate fabric. That's all I knew. And it was glowing. And it was speaking to me from above as I was in the bed. And then I remember floating at the top of the ceiling, looking down at my body, having this conversation with this being and not knowing what was being talked about, which, you know, and I remember telling my mother about it. And I assume it may have been my father died when I was five. So that's probably your father. I said, well, that, that wasn't my father. I know what my father looked like. It was something else. And so that was important to me. And I always wondered what was said. I, I met somebody recently who tuned into it and said, basically what I uh, thought, which was, well, you agreed to what you're doing. You made the agreement to what you do. There was something else that happened when I was nine, which was a very hard year in my life for many reasons. And I had a dream that I was walking up a strange stone flight of stairs to this garden with this fountain that was like a Coptic, now what I would describe as shaped like a Coptic cross with pavers around it and all these leaves. And um, when I was 13, my family took a trip through Vermont and we hit the town of Plainfield and I started to have deja vu and we ended up at Goddard College. Um, my mother was visiting somebody there and there was the stone flight of stairs and the, gar and the garden and the pond that I, I dreamt about years before. And I never forgot it when I was about 30... I don't know, 31, 32, 33, I got an invitation from Goddard to go teach there. Um, I didn't, I mean, they, they literally asked me to apply. I wasn't looking for work. Yeah. And I went there and I was there for many years. I'm actually still on the board. But my work in many ways, I think, was catalyzed there. And the woman who first suggested that I write about my Claire audience when I didn't want to. And so I didn't in the guides path and it said, no, we have a book to write. That was all because of Goddard. So I'm terribly grateful to it. They actually allowed me to be a channel and, and, and be there, which was, if you think about academia, that's rather rare, but I really was supported. So that was there. And, you know, but those were the experiences. There were precognitive dreams and things like that, but I didn't think of myself as psychic and I still am uncomfortable with the term. It's a little loaded, but I, I'm able to hear and feel for other people and access information that I shouldn't be able to get in any other way. And for some reason, I take dictation well. It's interesting to, you know, the stories you've told and the experiences you had when you're five and nine and, and later on. And everything. It's interesting to look back on one's life and kind of recognize that there has been some kind of divine orchestration, you know, that organize things in a way that you wouldn't have been able to because you just didn't have the, the, the breadth or depth of understanding. But, you know, it's kind of more than just yes. random coincidence that this, that, and the other thing happened. Well, when I, you know, when I look back at the time I went to Goddard and I, I you know, I, I, as a teacher and I wasn't writing and I had, I was studying healing and I was beginning to make this my focus there was a lot, there were years where I didn't know what the hell happened. You know, how did I get here? What am I doing? It didn't look like the life I was supposed to live. And I was quite unhappy. 
And for some reason, the fact that I was in this place that I had dreamt about when I was nine years old placed this as in a context and it gave me comfort. Like, I don't know where I am, but I think I'm where I'm supposed to be, even if it doesn't make sense to be now. And now it does make sense to me with, and I'm very grateful for it. Yeah. Um, The implication of what you're saying and of the question I just asked is that there are sort of a lot of beings who aren't in human form who are hanging out somewhere and, and some of them are interceding in human affairs. Um, beneficially in, in, the, in the, most of the stories we hear. And yet it's interesting because a lot of people who would consider themselves, you know, on a spiritual path, um, not a lot, but many, rather discount the whole notion or possibility that there are subtle realms with beings residing in them. They, they think it's either mythology or fantasy or, or some kind of illusory imagination or something. Um, I don't think that way. And I'm sure you don't based upon what you've been experiencing over the years, but maybe you could comment a little bit upon the, the idea that there are sort of subtler realms or subtler dimensions, which are not evident to ordinary human sensory experience, but which are nonetheless there just as, you know, science has told us there are many things which aren't evident to our sensory experience, but which are there. I, I tend to be fairly practical. I'm not terribly woo-woo for, for somebody who does what I do. So, you know, the fact that I was seeing things, I mean, orbs, you know, orbs of light would show up in the room, and these things that were quite real visually to me and startling was important to me. And the fact that, you know, one of the reasons that I actually am able to trust the channeled information, which has its own life, is that I have this odd ability to step into other people and become them and then hear them. It's telepathic work or clairsentient work, but I seem to operate that way. And the fact that that gets proven out again and again has helped me to trust the authenticity of the other. It validates it for me, and I, I'm, I'm finding that helpful. It kind of makes you more credible, too, that you have this sort of little bit of a skeptical attitude, I guess you could say, a a kind of a show me attitude, um, you know, a little bit of a scientific thing where I I want some kind of experiential verification. I'm not just going to accept everything on face. Yeah, I can't. You know, I mean, I have if, if the guides that I was working with decided, you know, one of the rules with the books is that they can't be edited. They can't be changed. Occasionally, the editor will try to to change a phrase and and into proper English. And I change it right back to what it was on the recording because unless I garbled it in the transmission, which has been known to happen, it has to come out the way it was spoken. That's the deal. Why why was I saying this about verification and, and, you know, skepticism? Yeah. But if they, if the guides were to say something like in, in a transmission and by the way, the moon, the moon really is made of green cheese. I would have to say, Hey, wait a minute. And I would question the teaching. And then they either have to come back and explain it. You know, that's kind of the deal. Once in a while, they'll say, if I, they'll say, Paul was interrupting, we'll attend to his question later. And they'll come back to it. But it's kind of the deal. Because I don't want to be party to anything. My name, you know, I didn't write the books, but my name's on the cover. And at that level, there's a level of accountability that I feel. And I don't want to be party to something. I don't claim authorship. But I, I am at a certain level a collaborator because my consciousness is being used, my body, my voice, 
um, my vocabulary, even though they seem to extend at times beyond my vocabulary by using words that I know are words because I've heard them, but I don't know quite what they mean until I look them up after the, after the session. Right. But I have to be an inquiry. And um, I also think it's important to understand that when I work, there's an energy that becomes present that's palpable. It's in the books, but when I do workshops, you've got a hundred people sometimes that have never felt energy that are feeling it. Yep. And I think that's really important because then they have their own experience of knowing. And if they're doing that, then they don't have to defer to me because I don't want anybody's authority. It's a mess. I don't want it. I have enough problems with my own, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Good. I think I've asked enough groundwork questions in terms of, you know, what is channeling and your background and all that kind of stuff. Now let's, let's start talking about what information you actually have come, has come through you. And uh, I was thinking of a way of doing it. See if you like this idea of just, you've written six books, you said of um, if we just do a retrospective and say, okay, book one, here's the main points of that. And here, and here's book two, here are the main points of that. Obviously in, as much or as little detail as would take to, given the, the time allowed, but that would give people a really comprehensive overview, you know, of everything of your work so far. So the, the very first book was called I Am the Word, and it really is the primer. And I actually, I haven't gone back to it since it was channeled, really. I haven't gone back and read it. But I actually think that the, the DNA of all of the succeeding books are in I Am the Word. And I didn't realize that at the time. But they said something really important in the first book. And they say the Christ in man or humanity is an event that happens. And their definition of Christ, which is very specific, is as the aspect of the creator that can be realized in material form in manifestation. And initially I thought, oh, this is conjecture and this is about a nicer way of being and being more loving to one another. That's not what they're teaching at all. I mean, that comes with the territory. They were very clear to say things like, you can't be the light and hold another in darkness. You know, I mean, their teachings are, are very specific about those things. But I am the word lays out, I, I believe, their agenda for the realization of the divine in form. And I missed the form part early in the text because that was too far out for me. The second book, the book of love and creation. Wait, wait, wait before we go on to the second book. Um, so just elaborate a little bit more on what you mean by divine in form. Like I, I, like I suppose Jesus would be a, a nice example of someone who had really embodied the divine. It's in a form. teaching of embodiment. It's exactly what it is. And I mean, yeah. this is what they're going to now. And I'm not as articulate about it as I am perhaps other things because the teachings are still coming fast and furious. But what they've said is, you know, we've been raised to believe that, you know, there is some maybe some God up in the clouds and we're stuck here in the mud. You know, and they say, well, here's the big deal. God is the mud and it's also your skin and your breath and everything you see. So, you know, the realization, which means the knowing of the divine in form is what is translating to the kingdom, which they say is the awareness of the divine that's inherent in all manifestation to operate at that level of, of vibratory accord is an alignment that cannot exclude form. Other than that, you're back in this kind of separation. So it's easier for me, truthfully, and sadly I'll say, 
to, to know that God or whatever you want to call God is in that tree out the window than it is in my own overweight body some days, you know? It's like, I, this isn't what I'm supposed to look like, but the tree really is. So the realization of the divine in form to realize isn't just to figure out. It's not an, an intellectual thing. Realization is knowing. And right. to know something is to, to be as it, I, I would think. So the teaching of embodiment has actually been progressive, but it's oddly somewhat, I'm not going to say it's masked in the other teachings. They just don't get to it formally for, for a few more books. And this is really where they're at now. So I am the word is the attunement to the vibration of the word. All the books are attunements in their own way to vibration. And there's an attunement in I am the word that's very specific. I am word through my body, word I am word. I am word through my vibration, which means the energetic field, word I am word. I am word through my knowing of myself as word. And they say this is a new claim of identity. So this is and sort of the basis. And what would be a good synonym for word here, if we could use a synonym? I mean, in esoterica, I think it's something like monad, you know, um, yeah. which I don't, also don't really understand. But what they say their definition of the word is, is the action of the creator. That's the word. It's the action of the divine as can be realized. So when you're saying I am word, you're saying I am the action of the creator, I, or I am the creator embodied in this form. Is that is that fair? Yes, but you, you, the, the real challenge here is not to confuse that with the personality self. So the personality self isn't the one that's claiming this. It makes more sense, I think. I mean, the, there's a whole, there's like a 50-page chapter that unpacks the word in the first book, and I should probably go back to it because I could give you a better answer. Not at all. They're saying not at all the answer was fine. They're saying the answer was fine, so I'll leave it at that for now. One more thing on your on your first book, I want to say, you know how you were saying a minute ago that it's a lot easier for me to see God in the tree than in my overweight body or something like that. I find it interesting to use just as a, a little tool for remembrance of the divine that like take the body, overweight or not, has about a hundred trillion cells in it. Each tr each cell is about as complicated as a as Tokyo, and, and is able to repair and replicate itself, and is all coordinated with all the other cells. I mean, what an incredible display of intelligence. So it's not just a lump of meat. I mean, there's this amazing thing going on here, and that, if you kind of remind yourself of that, it just it gives you goosebumps. Yeah, and that's pretty much what they say as they progress in the teaching. Yeah. You know, the divine is as every cell in your body. You can't exclude it. But the realization of God in every cell of your body is a whole other thing. Yeah, and and, and that's, that's the embodiment that they're, 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 they're moving us towards, I believe. Yeah. And you said earlier that you, you're like an instrument, like a radio. I mean, a radio can pick up radio waves. A rock cannot, you know, the, uh, even though maybe the rock is made a lot of the same elements as a radio. So, you know, we're arranged in such a way as to be effective receptors of, of this. Yeah, we are. And you can usually feel the attunement when you work with it, which is the nice thing. Yeah. So they're attuning the physical self, the vibrational field, and then they're beginning the work on identity, which is sort of a replacement of the emphasis on who. Mm -hmm. So as who, as personality versus who, and that's my word versus, not theirs, as what they would call the true self or the divine self or the eternal self or the Christ itself. They use all these different phrases yeah. to describe. 
I don't have much to say about the second book. I was in a terrible mood when I channeled it. I didn't, you know, as a lot of people, it's their favorite book of the bunch. It's really thick. It's 500 pages. No wonder you're in a terrible mood. Well, no, I had just gotten dumped. I didn't usually tell this story. I had just gotten, just a relationship had just ended. And I had had an appointment with this woman, Victoria Nelson, who was on the phone for the first number of books. There has to be an active listener. Now the books are dictated in front of students. The whole last book and chunks of the books before were delivered before audiences. You know, there's, there's a record of it all now. But Victoria and I had had a date to talk about the second book. And I tried to get out of it, and she wouldn't let me. And she said, let's just get on the phone and put the recorder on and see what they want to say about when they want to start. And so I did it, and they started that day. Here we go. And they started dictating the introduction, and they didn't stop until it was done. And those days, I used to dictate pretty much every day until the thing was done, unless I had to go teach a class. And now it's a little easier. I, I do them in workshops. I show up for the workshop. I sit down and I say, okay, chapter one. And then they, uh -huh. then they just do it. You know, there it's, pretty neat. it's easier. That's for so sure. Two birds with one stone. Yeah. But that, that book in some ways seems to be a textbook, you know, I mean, a, a, a manual on how to begin to operate at the higher level. That's the best way that I can describe it. So if someone were to read it, they would be able to extract from it practical steps that would enable them to operate at the higher level? I, they talk more in that book about opening up to one's innate abilities, to one's own knowing, you know, your true knowing. And they go and they talk a lot in, in general about the distinction between thinking and knowing. Um, you know, the true self knows, the small self thinks. There's right. nothing wrong with thinking, but you can understand the difference. And they talk, as I recall, about how to develop clairaudience, clairsentience, you know, how to begin to work with the subtle bodies um, as part of that teaching. But the larger teaching, which, and I, you know, truthfully, other than sitting in the recording studio and doing the audio book, I've actually never read it. I dictated it. I typed it. I was so sick of hearing my own voice by the end of the transcription that I never wanted to hear it again. Now somebody else transcribes the stuff, and I can go back and read them and learn from them. But at the time, it was challenging. Um, but it's a dense teaching, and the sentences I find in that book are almost Henry Jamesian in their length. These long, long paragraphs go on. I mean, it was just, I didn't know how to punctuate a channel text. I mean, people think these books are written, and they're not. They're spoken. Yeah. And then they just seem as if they're written because the guides are adept enough to, to relay structure of a sentence in a way that can be, can be moved to the page. How many years ago was that book published? That, I think, was channeled in 2000 and nine and probably published a year later, I would think, to maybe yeah. 2011, something <laughs> like that. And so it's been out there in the public for eight years or something. And do you get feedback from people? What, they say, hey, I read this book and I, actually, yes, indeed, I'm developing these abilities. It, it's working for me. I hear things like that. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people, I, a lot of people call it their favorite book. And I, I've actually not asked why. I mean, it's a dense teaching. And I, it may have been that I was not in a great state, not really wanting to channel it, but I showed up anyway. And I've learned over the years that how I feel doesn't make much difference at all. Might have been just what the doctor ordered for you, you know? Probably helped, you know? Yeah. The next book... Well, let me ask you a question here before we go into that. When you do these channeling sessions, either currently or in, uh, over the years... 
do you generally feel enlivened and uplifted afterwards? Or do you feel like, oh, that, I'm kind of wiped out now. I've got to go take a nap. When I, in the first books, I would, I was channeling for a long period of time at once, sometimes two hours in a sitting, yeah. which is impossible. And I felt completely stoned when I would get out of the chair. I mean, I would just stoned in a good way, like high, and, not, yeah. not high in a good way. I mean, a little bleary. I mean, I was like, oh, I what the hell just happened? I was, I was, you know, it's not that experience anymore, but I'm, I work a lot now and I, I've been known to channel in workshops for five hours in a day. And I do it frequently. I mean, every weekend that I do a workshop. And when I go to Esalen, I was at Esalen in California um, in December, November, December for five weeks. And I channeled every day for 30, 35 days or something. It was crazy. Yeah. Um, and sometimes, some days for, for very, very long stretches. The book dictations now that they're doing them in workshops, it's a very different experience. The workshop, the energy in workshops is very, very high, and I would be there anyway. And I enjoy the channelings for the books and workshops because I don't know where they're going to go. They're going to have to build on prior teachings, but it's all going to be brand new material. Yeah. And when they're teaching a workshop, there are certain things that I understand that they will often do. They'll attune people. There are certain talking points that they may get to. But very often after the introduction to the workshop, I don't know where they're going to go. I mean, I never know where they're going to go. You can't know and channel. But the books are exciting because, well, every time I channel, it's like I'm standing on, the, on, on a diving board about to jump into a pool and I don't know if there's any water, you know, <laughs> because I'm sitting in a chair before a room full of people and I, they've all chosen to be there. They paid money to be there. And I don't know what's going to come out of my mouth at all. I'm just there. And then bang, it happens. So that's extremely exhilarating. The channeling can be joyful and I can be filled with great love while I'm doing it. And it can be emphatic or dramatic or very thoughtful and very precise. The last two books that were dictated felt completely as if I was sitting there being recited a book that had already been written by them. It was yeah. so carefully spoken. I mean, careful, 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 careful. And that may have been the case with the earlier text, but I don't know if I was at that level of alignment of ease. You know, if you watch videos of me channeling, because there's some from the, from the earlier days, it's very, my body's rocking back and forth. It's very jerky. It's a much more fluid transmission now as I've worked. So I can be exhausted at the end of it, but it's arduous, physically arduous for me. I can imagine just talking for five hours. Yeah, it's a lot of work, but yeah. the energy is not what knocks me out. The, the energy is great. I can imagine, uh, you know, there'd be two things. One is if you get this energy flowing through you, and that in itself is enlivening and stimulating and enriching. But then if there's a lot of detritus that is kind of clogging the channel, so to speak, that's got to be cleared out. And sometimes when accumulated, you know, stuff that's in us is cleared out, we feel all foggy or rough or difficult, you know, go, it's, it's unpleasant sometimes as it's, as it's clearing. Yeah, I think that, I mean, that's very true. And when I'm channeling, I mean, I you know, there was a channeling that I, I mean, I've, know, I've learned this over the years. You know, I've had 
some very hard days where I was expected to then channel after the fact, like the day I put my my dog, who was my companion for you know twelve years, down, and then I had to channel that night on on a live stream, yeah. and the guides came through beautifully. You know, I mean, in a lot of ways, there's some mechanism in place where I can be having a, a rough time, and they come through with grace. They'll often address. If there is an issue, and I've had this happen, I could have just had a disagreement with somebody or I've gotten my feelings hurt and then I have to go channel. And they will talk about not specifically my history or my issue, but the investment of personality and outcome or whatever it is that they really want to get through, you know, and move us through. So it, it's all used. It's all usable stuff. Um, and the detritus, sure. I mean, so much of the work that they're teaching is about releasing what is not the true self, what we've over-identified with or we believe what we think we are at the cost of what we truly are. I mean, that's the, that's so much of what this is about. And I get to experience that as well. It's kind of amusing sometimes listening to you because they chide you like a naughty boy, you know, like, oh, this Paul here, he's, he gives us a bit of a hard time and he, he, he better get to the background now because we really want to talk to you. <laughs> Have to get, kind of have this uh, cute relationship with them. Well, you know, they've it's changed a bit, but I, I mean, not so much when I'm doing a workshop. You know, when I'm channeling a workshop, I mean, they'll say Paul is interrupting, or they they'll they'll you know they they really can't ignore it. Or if I want to put my two cents in, they'll say or is or or if you wish, which is usually a nod to my thought. They'll incorporate it if it's appropriate. You know, they'll 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 acknowledge me as as contributor. But um, what they started to do in the book, in the, in the book of uh, Knowing and Worth, no, yeah, the that was the third book, fourth book actually, it was later. They started to anticipate, it was the book of truth, it was late, two books ago. Um, they started anticipating my interruptions before I could interrupt. They, so it was, it's funny if you look at these things, because they'll say things like, now Paul is interrupting, but I was about to, but I hadn't formulated my thought yet. And then they'll say, imagine I and my fellows are, in, are having discord. I mean, it's language I would never choose. But what they're doing is they're anticipating the interruption in order to continue their teaching without my getting in the way. Yeah. In, in the third book, the book of knowing and worth, there was one channeling session that I did. It's midway through the book. And I and Victoria Nelson was in the room, which was she'd always been on, on the phone. She was in the room and I was nervous that she was there. And I was I was in those days I was channeling on my feet. So I was walking and channeling with a phone, you know, to my ear in front of a group. And um, her sneaker squeaked on the floor and I jumped out of my skin. And I was already angry at somebody else. And the guides finally said, and this is in the book, you know, we have to stop and deal with Paul's anger and we'll decide if this is going to be in the text or not. And at the end of the chapter, it's in the text. The whole thing is in the text. But it was clear to me at that time that they had to sort of rethink the structure of the book. They started doing a lecture on principles, as I recall, and then it became about, you know, anger in a whole other way. And I think it's a valuable thing in the book. I did read it and I went, well, this, this still makes sense and it's supportive, but it doesn't happen anymore that way. You know, yeah. they're, they're anticipating the jumps to avoid them. So it's kind of like, 
I, I, so, I mean, I, don't, I still don't know how to drive. I'm in my 50s. I never learned how to drive. But I imagine... Maybe you can afford the chauffeur now. No, nah, that's not good. I don't think that's going to happen. I have, I, <laughs> you live in New York. You just hop and take the subway. So, but the difference is, I think if you're learning to drive, there's some lock on the steering wheel where there's a second wheel and the, the driving instructor can jump oh, in. Oh, right. Yeah, can take over. Can yeah. take over. And I think that's kind of what's happened. If I want to grab the wheel, they know how to, to get it back now without having to restructure their, their text. Yeah. If one were to like do a PhD thesis on, on your work and study all your books very carefully, um, would they find – a lot of redundancy or is it just fresh material and fresh material and fresh material rolling out? I mean, I can imagine there's certainly a point to uh, reemphasizing certain points, but I mean, to, to me, the thought of sitting on a stage for five hours, much less five books or six books and just dictating fresh material is hard to imagine. I know where it all comes from. You'd have to ask the readers. I mean, when every time I dictate for the texts, you know, some of the stuff is familiar from prior teachings, and I understand it, and some of the stuff isn't. What what I think is interesting is the teachings have been extremely consistent. It's really, I don't know, I haven't heard of any time where they contradict a prior teaching in the books. I've never heard of it, and, you know, somebody may find that one day, but I haven't seen it or noticed it or it's, it hasn't been called to my attention. The teachings are progressive, and I think that's important. They're building blocks, and I was less aware of that, really less aware of that until than until the last two, and I saw what they were really going for, which was I think their agenda for us is much larger than I assumed. Um, I really do. And what do you think their agenda is? Realization. It's 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 embodiment as a yes, for all of humanity. Yeah, yeah. This isn't yeah. this isn't a feel good teaching. This isn't about how to manifest a better condo. It's not. Right. It's never been that stuff. Well, all of humanity being realized would feel pretty good. I think you know, condos or no condos, it would be a better world. I think the idea of of reidentifying who we are comes at a cost. And the cost is the challenging thing, and it's why this isn't necessarily a convenient teaching, because it's not ascribing to what my personality thinks he should be or have or, or any of those things necessarily. Yeah, I'm reminded of the rich man coming to Jesus and saying, I want to follow you. And Jesus says, okay, give up everything and follow me. And the guy says, oh, sorry, I can't, can't do that. Yeah, well, but the guys, I mean, they've been, they've been doing live streams lately. They've been using the metaphor of the eye of the camel, the, the eye of the needle and the camel. And that's, basically, that's where he said it. Yeah, right? it's, it's, it's the same man. teaching. But the idea that the things that we attach great importance to that stand in the way will need to be released. And sometimes what does that is a great big shock to the system and a bump. They've used the metaphor of, you know, a jalopy, an old convertible with your suitcases piled in the back. And you hit the bumps, and you're just lodging the suitcases as you go. And very often that's the, the process here. I've often thought about that and, you know, have been through a lot of it myself and my friends since, you know, I've been meditating for about 50 years and gone through a lot of stages and levels of degrees of development but I, I i you can always extrapolate from the individual out to the society and imagine that the the entire society 
may be going through or may soon go through the kinds of uh, changes that um, individuals go through in, in their spiritual development. So I wonder if you could speak to that a little bit or the guides could speak to that as to what sort of um, speed bumps will be hit by society as it undergoes the necessary changes? What sort of structures that we've all thought to be stable and, and secure might end up toppling down as, as the World Trade Centers did metaphorically? Oh, I don't know if I'm going to channel them today. It can happen. They may, if, if, I, if you can, if you want or not. No, listen, if, I, if, I, if I don't answer well, they've been known to, to cut in and say, well, thank in, you yeah. very much, but... But I could, they, they have talked about this. The Book of Truth is where they really start talking about external, the externalization of this. And what the guides say really is, you know, we're in, we're in agreement to everything that we see. If we can see it, we're in agreement to it. And by agreement, they mean vibrational accord. And we means people? Collective, yes. We, we, I mean, everybody who's hearing this is in agreement to what you may disagree with what I say or who I am or how I present or any of those things. But everything you see, the guides would say you're in accord to, which is vibrational accord. It doesn't mean like it doesn't mean that we create I created the war in Iraq, but I'm in agreement to it in vibration because the consciousness that I hold is focusing on that. And the moment something is known, my consciousness is in agreement to it. So it's a trippy teaching. But they're talking now about the collective agreements to the whole. And so pretty much they say that the consciousness, let me see if I can get this right. They're going to they're gonna be the so-so, so they may step in actually at all. We would like to. They're saying we would like to, what he's really asking. They're saying what he's really asking is how do you evolve, is how do you evolve beyond the barriers, beyond the barriers that you've erected, beyond the agreements you've made, beyond the agreements you've made as collective, as a collective and now hindering progress, that are now hindering progress. And actually, seen the manifestations you see are things, in fact, are things, in fact, that you have created that you have created. Anything that's been created may be recreated. They're saying may be recreated in a higher octave, in a higher octave. But this happens at the cost of the old. But this happens at the cost of the old. Everything is in resonance. Everything is in resonance. Everything's erected in fear. Everything that was erected in fear or serves fear in some way or serves fear in some way must now be renowned, must now be renowned, realized in a way, realized in a new way beyond what you've chosen thus far, beyond what you have chosen thus far. The small self, which is also known, the small self will choose what the small self has known, what the small self has known. She knows herself through history. She knows herself through history and is participatory and is participatory in the replication of, her, in the replic replication of history as an ongoing way, in an ongoing way. The true self that you are, the true self that you are, the aspect of the true self, the aspect of you that is the true self, can conceive, something higher, can conceive of something higher once you realize yourself. Once you realize yourself as who you truly are, as who you truly are in the higher way, in the higher way, the creations you attend to, the creations you attend to must conform to the world, must conform to the identity you hold. You lift the kingdom, you lift the kingdom into being, into being, or the awareness of the divine, or the awareness of the divine through your own acknowledgement, through your own acknowledgement of your own inherent divinity, of your own inherent divinity. It cannot be other, it cannot be other, period. So they're saying, period. Right. Well, that makes sense to me. I mean, maybe another way of phrasing it is that everything we see in the world, all of its structures and systems and cultures and political things, everything else, is just the 
external manifestation of human consciousness and the quality of human consciousness as it exists in various, you know, individuals, families, communities, countries, you know, the whole thing. It's all just a, an external thing. And if the consciousness changes, then all those external structures are going to change. I think that's what they were just saying. And like that, and there's a kind of a, a resistance sometimes. For instance, you know, Trump is out there campaigning saying, we're going to keep digging coal. And, you know, coal is a completely ridiculous technology compared to the ones that are already blossoming in, in alternative energies. But, you know, there's a tendency to hang on to the old and resist the new. And I, I have a feeling that, as they said, in where, wherever that saying came, Star Trek or something, resistance is futile, you know. <laughs> I mean, if the forces of change are too powerful to be resisted by even the greatest corporations, as powerful as they may seem. I agree. In the very first book, I Am the Word, they said that humanity is at a time of reckoning. And they said a reckoning is a facing of oneself and all of one's creations. And this is happening on an individual level. The individual is having to go through this, but the collective is as well. And we're all participatory to the whole. You know, this, this idea that we're not as complicit, truthfully, to everything that we see, because the consciousness that we have, they say, imprints itself on what we see or supports it. Mm -hmm. So the example they gave, because I question this, and, you know, I'm, I'm not always their best student, but they said, I think it's somewhere in the book of Mastery, which was the fourth book, I said, so, you know, if there's a book on a table in Paris, I'm in agreement to the book on the table in Paris. And consciousness said, yes, the moment you know that there's a book on the table in Paris, your consciousness is actually informing that, you see. And how you hold anything in your awareness contributes to it. The simple teachings are, you know, what you damn damns you back. What yeah. you bless blesses you. It's the same idea. And so much of their teaching is about the awareness of the inherent divine in everyone. You know, I know who you are in truth. I know what you are in truth. I know how you serve in truth, which is, they say, the claim of mastery or the realization of the divine that is present in all that can be known and realized and claimed in fullness. This is a little bit of a medical metaphysical question, but it, it just came to mind as something I've heard bandied about. Uh, that apparently Einstein and Rabindranath Tagore had this debate, and one of them, I think it was Tagore, was saying, "Well, if there's no one perceiving the moon, then the moon doesn't exist." And Einstein said, "No, that's ridiculous. I mean, the moon exists whether or not anyone is there to perceive it." And my argument would be, "Well, it's like let's say all of humanity agrees not to look at the moon." We still have tides, you know. So, I mean, does does our awareness or our perception of, of the universe actually bring it into being? Or is it there regardless of, of whether or not anybody is actually perceiving it? If a tree falls in the forest and there's no one there to hear it, does it make a sound? But I get it. I mean, this is what I'm getting right now. It's there, but it's existing in multiple octaves. So there are different ways of realization. So what they've been saying recently is that, you know, we're used to the keyboard that's on the piano you know, which is basically the three-dimensional world that we, we've been playing in. And they say, you know, the note C exists well above what the human ears can, can comprehend. Yeah, you can just keep going up an octave and keep going on up. You're right. And as you lift to the higher octave, your experience of what you see is transformed. When they're teaching the kingdom now, which is one of their teachings, and they say the kingdom is the awareness of the divine in all manifestation, what I've been understanding about this which was surprising to me, is that 
your claim of this thing, your awareness of, of the physical realm in the high octave is actually what calls it into being. The witness of the divine or the fabric of the universal force, whatever you want to call it, that's inherent in everything, once witness calls that forth. It's a trippy thing. When they started doing this, which was in a workshop at the Esalen Institute last summer, they were working with the claim, I know what, I know who you are, I know what you are, and what means in manifestation. And the claim, I know what you are, when people would focus on the, on, on the physical person before them and claim, I know who you are, I know what you are, the person before them, the energetic field of the person before them would emit these waves back, which was essentially the divine coming back and saying yes. So the focus on the divine and material form when claimed actually has, they call it the echo or the, the, the echo, the boomerang, the, the, the resonance of the field responding back. I mean, it's trippy as can be, but we could all experience it. So that, I think, is the beginning of where they're going now in their teachings, which is really about creation and how consciousness does manifest. I mean, this is sort of beyond my stuff. You know, I've never read, you know, I don't read anybody's stuff. I don't read other channeled work. I, do, I read half a set book when I was a grad student and, and I thought it was great, but I wasn't into that kind of thing then. And I've never read any of the new physics and, you know, I don't, I, I just don't read it. I buy things and I don't read them. And I think part of the reason is I'm trying to, or I'm being maintained to be clear for what your innocence and not, not pretty much you I just your own ideas in there yeah it's well it's not even that I think once something's in the pot it can be used yeah. you know people sometimes come to me and they say well tell me about my soul contracts and I go well that's Carolyn Mesa's work my guides have never mentioned soul contracts They've never talked about it, but they do talk about agreements we make prior to incarnation, and that may be the same thing. But the idea that once things are in the zeitgeist or in the vocabulary, they're so, isn't how the ones that I work with seem to, to work at all. They actually say, and I know this is this just maybe because I flunked science when I was in high school, but they say they don't use the language of science because the language of science will be dated in 50 years and 100 years. Mm -hmm. And what they're teaching is truth. And they say what is true is always true. It's always been true. It will always be true. So they use different language. They don't speak about dimensions, really. They, take, they speak about octaves, you know, and resonance. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I imagine in 50 years, there, was, there will still be a language of science, but it'll be as It'll be even more different than today's language than mm -hmm. today's is from 50 years ago. You know, they're just yeah. the, uh, the way I think they're exponentially developing. Well, if you look at, you know, my, my, my friend Mitch Horowitz wrote about this, and it's an interesting thing. He said, if you look at the, um, if you look at the language of the occult, you know, if you look at uh, table tapping at the, at the rise of spiritualism, Table tapping was, you know, once for yes. Yeah, Houdini was investigating it, but it was like once for yes, twice for no. But those were the days of Morse code. So that makes for sort of sense. You know, my guides talk about dictaphones for some reason. That's their <laughs> their language. But you hear other people, you know, other channels. And they, I had a download last night. I mean, we're, we're, we're appropriating the language of the times to yeah. describe the phenomena that we're all experiencing. 
If I had your ability, I think I, I've, I've heard you say that you, you don't do this, but I would be so curious. I'd want to know, who are you guys? Where do you live? What is it like there? Do you live in houses? Do you eat food? You know, do you have relationships? I mean, yeah. how long have you been there? Have you ever been a human being? Are you uh. going to be a human being? And I, I would end up with having all these curious kind of questions. And Irene said, that's why I'm not a channel. <laughs> I don't know. I'm, I'm cautious about this stuff. I, it may be my, my caution that prevents them. I mean, they, they've, got, they've started getting into this territory on occasion. Um, and it surprises me at times what they will answer. You know, I mean, occasionally I'll, I'll be doing an interview and somebody will say something that I'm sure they're not going to talk with. And I said, no, we would like to take the question. And then they go on and they do. Um, and this may be about my comfortability. I don't like names. I, I'm not a good new ager. You know, when I was coming into this stuff, you know, in the 90s, I guess the early 90s, it would have been, you'd hear things like, oh, there's a Archangel Michael channeling in Brooklyn, but you really want to go to the Upper West Side because Gabriel's the really hot one. And I think this is just <laughs> ridiculous, you know, this sort of kind of spiritual materialism. And I was uncomfortable when the guides came through with a name and they say, if you want to call us something, you can call us this because, again, there's attachments to that and there's ego attached to that and narratives. And, and I'm not comfortable with it. The only reason I call them the guides is because my ex, when my ex found out I could do this, used to say, ask the guides this, ask the guides that. That's, how they're, that's why they're called the guides. It's really easy. It was, it was an easy title and nobody's complained about it from, from their end thus far. So the questions about that you're asking, um, the only other person that said that's the first thing I, I would want to know was um, Steve Paulson from NPR. It was like, I want to get into all these things, you know. And I suspect that they will. There are three more books coming as far as I know, and I assume that they'll get into some of this stuff because there is interest. But I do hear that how they operate is very different than what we can imagine beyond the known. Beyond the known. So I don't think we can really put this stuff in a box as we would like to. You know, they've, they've been teaching Beyond the Known since the last book was completed. That's the Book of Freedom. It, it'll be out in November. And they immediately, the next workshop started, okay, we're on to Beyond the Known. And one of the things that they've said, which I, I find interesting about where they're going, they've begun talking about the limitations of language itself as a way to convey information because the language itself is so laden with history and they said you know every time something new appears you all want to name it so that and that's basically our way of controlling it what you need to do is ask it its name ask it what it is and then you have a different relationship to it yeah that's where they're going yeah. now you know there's a thing in sanskrit where it said that the vibratory quality of a word it matches the vibratory vibratory quality of the object to which it refers. So if you take apple, for instance, whatever the Sanskrit word for that is, the vibratory quality of the very sound mm -hmm. that refers to the apple is parallel to or resonant with the vibratory quality of an actual apple. So it's mm -hmm. said to be like the language of nature. And Makes sense like to me. the kind of thing you're alluding to. Here. Well, what they say about the attunements that they work with now is that the attunements are all, they're language-based. They have been thus far. Now they're starting to tone as part of it, which is, you know, challenging for me because I don't love doing uh, it. Yeah, I have a question that's been in the back of my mind for mm -hmm. a little while now today. Um, and that is that we were talking about, you know, 
channeling Archangel mm-hmm. Gabriel or oh, yeah. whoever, you know, all uh-huh. this kind of stuff. And, you know, I've run into a number of people. There was a guy in our town who for quite some time was supposedly channeling somebody like that. And he, he didn't strike me as being very genuine, but yet he could sit there and go on and on mm-hmm. and often affecting a foreign accent mm-hmm. of some kind. Mm-hmm. And I'm just wondering if, if some people might say, well, there's a level of the mind which is just more imaginative and creative. Mm-hmm. And, and if you can tap into that, it has nothing to do with other beings. Yeah. You can sit there all day and churn out some mm-hmm. kind of information. I don't know. I suppose that's true. I'm not mm-hmm. negating that possibility. I, you know, I've been the one to question this, I think, the most of anybody that I know. And my biggest problem with what I do is that I'm the one doing it. You know, if you were the channel, I could decide what I think. But, you know, as the, as the one taking the dictation, it's a different thing. The one thing that I do know is that no matter how um, good a vocabulary I have, I don't think I'm capable of dictating six books that require no editing. I just don't yeah, think it's possible. There's a deep level of your own mind that's just super creative. I mean, we see this stuff coming out. You know, look at Shakespeare or Beethoven. Well, and, you know, if you look at their personal lives, you might think there's no way yeah. this turkey is going to well, you know, come out with all this brilliant stuff. And yet they, they had the ability to tap into something so sure. deep and bring it forth, you know? I, I don't know. I mean, I, the only way that I can answer that is that I'm also able to access information that I have no way of knowing. And that's right. been proven and filmed and and all of those things. And that helps me trust the channeled work. Um, and that there's also an energy that's palpable that people experience. I mean, there's phenomena attached to this. I, I mean, maybe there's a scientific reason for this. There's this attunement that the guides often do in workshops where they stand before people and they sort of witness them and claim them in a new way. And it's about moving into co-resonance and vibratory accord. But I've been told again and again and again that my eyes turn bright blue when I'm doing this. And I have, you can see them, I have hazel eyes. I mean, they're not, they're not pale blue eyes. And so when I'm working at that level, there are things that seem to happen. Am I accessing some much wiser part of myself? I suppose that could be so, but my, I don't, I don't, it doesn't feel that way. You know, what I, what they've said is I am, connected to them already and so that there's already a relationship that sort of predates this work that allows it so i can be seen as an aspect of them but do i perceive this as you know my higher self no i I actually don't actually you know there's a way of of saying yes to both those things i think Mm -hmm. which is that at, at the deepest level you know what we are is so expansive that it does include all the impulses of intelligence mm-hmm. and beings and whatnot that are, mm-hmm. that are orchestrating creation. And so mm-hmm. uh, it's just, you know, it's, it's yourself, but like you say, it's, it's your higher self. And so being in touch with the higher self means being in touch with all the, all the fountains yeah. of wisdom that, that emerge from it. I know the difference. Okay. I says, yeah, but there's a difference. I think there is a difference. I mean, I know the difference between when I'm reading for somebody, when I'm tuning into somebody and hearing for them, um, and then I have to interpret information, or when I'm getting visual information or physical information, um, you know, and then I have to interpret. I can be sitting with somebody and I can feel 
a, a pain in my in my pectoral, and I don't know whether that's a tumor or a cyst or a bruise. And sometimes I find out that that's somebody that's where they had you know the biopsy, and it was fine. But I'm still feeling it. There's interpretation. Yeah. That's very different than what I'm channeling. When I'm channeling, I am literally taking dictation. There's no, the whole point is, is that there's no commentary on it. If there is commentary on it, it comes in my own voice. And they, and, you know, initially there's a line in the very first book that confuses people. And this is before I I realized I could footnote things effectively. But in the very introduction, they say, this is not a book that's written before. This is not a course in miracles. And people said, well, are they, are they dissing a course in miracles? And the fact, no, I heard this is not a book that's been written before. And I piped in, in the background, yeah, what about a course in miracles? As if this is not a course in miracles. I see they're responding to your. Exactly. And. And now I would know to footnote footnote that, but essentially all of those things now have been included as Paul is interrupting. They acknowledge the thought and then continue on, which is an effective way to work, and it it solves some some confusion. Okay, good. I've always wanted to ask that question Mm -hmm. of a channeler. Um, Let me uh, throw in a few questions now that people have sent in, Mm -hmm. and... We might jump around a little bit sure. from different people, uh-huh. but here's one. Um, if we are to assume that channeled beings are indeed communicating to certain people, what would their ultimate purpose be, and how would their input be different from earthly teachers? I think they're referring to this person is referring to, let's say, enlightened masters mm-hmm. uh, who are still in human bodies, mm-hmm. um, or from or from finding answers within ourselves. I hear it's a different methodology. I also hear that there's a different purview as we teach. As we teach, we realize they're saying we realize you, we know who you are, we know who you are, and they're saying and support you in your recognition of this. That is our honor. That is our honor as your teacher, as your teacher. Our investment in you, our only investment in you is your own position, is your own realization. We want no dependency upon us or the teachings on us or the teachings we teach ourselves. We teach you to know yourselves with your own self, to be the divine self that have always been that you have always been and create and create from that manifest from that manifest place manifest place the divine as you the divine as you is the key to your freedom is the key to your freedom you look outside yourselves you look outside yourselves you may look to a teacher you may look to a teacher if you wish but comprehend the teacher but comprehend the teacher as an aspect of know as an aspect of the divine as well and you look yourself and then you will lift yourself beyond the dependence upon him or beyond the dependence upon him or her, period. And they're saying, period. So I never said this. You know, when I hear, I whisper the words and repeat and everything. But he I was going to ask you about that. Yeah. Um, why do you suppose you do it that way as opposed to just thinking the thought and then saying it? I think that would take longer, truthfully. When I first started, very first started, and I don't know, maybe this is just, maybe it's just a bad habit, but this is how it works. Um, and it's, I mean it that way. I used to feel as if somebody were pressing their lips against my forehead and imprinting the words, and my lips would form the words, and I would whisper as that happened and then repeat them. And nobody could hear me on the whisper, so I got used to this as a simple way of being heard. Now, Somehow you couldn't say it out loud, the normal volume. I can. If I can, I have to think to pause. I have to try not to say the words as they come. So the whisper is the transmission itself. And so I would have to either, when I've tried to experiment with this, 
initially what I would do would try to raise the volume on the whisper and I would end up losing my voice or getting hoarse pretty quickly working that way. And it's also very fast. It's, fast. It's, very it's, it's staccato fast. I right, mean, it's right. boom, 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 boom. Like, I'm hearing the thought. I'm, I'm whispering the thought. The other thought is then coming right on top of it. It's, I've said it's like reading fortune cookies, you know, one after the other after the other. So all I can do is keep up with the phrase. It's like that's, a ball with the chocolates going so up. It's, it's a lot like that. <laughs> Really, it really is, and God forbid somebody makes a noise in the room when I'm doing that, because then I panic, because yeah. it's like somebody kicked the phonograph record and the needle skipped, and the guides are fine; they'll just go right back to where they were. But I'm in a panic because I don't recall what I just said. You know, I'm retaining about thirty percent of the information because I'm so busy yeah. in the moment. So the few times, and it actually happens more and more recently, so I shouldn't say the few times, where I'm channeling without the repetition, it's very out of control for me, personally. It feels like you're being sung, you know? It's a whole other thing. And when I do that, I don't retain anything. I'm really out of the picture. I'm not a trans channel. I don't want to be. I've heard of other people who are just out. Edgar Casey was asleep yeah, when he worked, and, and that was fine. I'm still in inquiry with this, and I kind of want to know who's coming through when they're coming through. You know, there's a lot of radio stations out there people can play, and I don't think they're all at a very high level. Right. You know, when I hear people that are channeling and they're talking about Oh, who killed Princess Di? And I'm thinking, what the hell is this about? You know, that's yeah. kind of low-level astral stuff, if it's even coming from, from any other source. And I, I don't want to be critical, but I do feel that I hold a responsibility here as the channel. Now, when they do come through full force, the energy has often been almost more than I can handle. I mean, it's huge. There's recordings of it. There's a few of them. There was one in a, in a workshop in, in, in Mexico, and they started channeling directly, and then they just moved at a certain point to sound. It was just sound that was coming out. I mean, it was, it was toning, and now that's what they're doing. But they were actually, and, and the energy was palpable. I mean, we're all sort of so in it. And now they're working with tone in, in very intentional ways. Um, and that's very, very new. That's only been going on for a few months, and I'm sort of trying still to understand what's happening. It must be having a profound effect on you. I mean, having the, all this channeling through you all these years. Well, they got you to stop smoking four packs a day. I mean, yeah. I know a lot of people who, who struggle with that one unsuccessfully. Uh, but, yeah. you, know. you know, I'd like them to get me to lose 50 pounds too, you know, and I think that's <laughs> going to be my, my job. I don't know how it's going to happen. It's my stuff. And, and maybe they'll probably tell me on the air, which would be even worse than what I'm, <laughs> what I'm ignoring. Um, it has changed my life enormously. And at the moment, you're catching me. And I will say at this moment, and I hope it lasts, I'm actually happy. You know, right. at the moment, yeah, I kind of am. And I'm kind of, well, I wasn't, this has not been a graceful journey for me at all. Two years ago, I left a career I'd had for 25 years. I loved teaching college. I was very good at it. And I, it was, in a lot of ways, my spiritual practice was teaching. And I honor it as thus. And it was a place for me to love. You know, teaching, any real teaching is an act of love. 
But I could take credit for what I did as a teacher in a way, and uh, and my own writing I could take credit for. I don't feel any sense of achievement with the channel books. It's freaky. It's not my stuff. I mean, I'm grateful that people are having these wonderful experiences with it and learning through it. I'm uncomfortable with that, too, in a way, because I didn't author it. I participated in its creation. So I'm having to come to a new relationship with this work that's very different than what I've known prior. Well, you know, a lot of spiritual teachers would tell you that it's not about me. I'm just an instrument of the divine. Yeah, yeah. I'm just a tool in the hands of something much bigger than me. So don't look at me as the source of this thing. And I would agree with all of them. I would agree yeah. with all of them. But I think channeling's a little bit different because it really is dictation. I know I was an inspired teacher when I was at NYU, and I know what being an inspired teacher feels like. Now you're just a stenographer. (laughs) In some ways, yes, but they've they've recently said that I was now integrating in a way that I would be more present in the work as myself, and that's something I'm curious about to see what that looks like. Your experience as a, a teacher of writing and a playwright and all gives you qualifications that somebody working in manual labor or something without that kind of education wouldn't necessarily have. So you've, that, that's, it's a, it's a gift that you, you bring to it that not everyone could. Well, I think I was trained, you know, there was, I was thinking about this yesterday. There was a point, God, maybe 10 years ago when I was teaching that I, I was repelled by my lecture notes. I didn't want I didn't want them anymore. And every class was about my just opening up, and it was like surfing. And in retrospect, I was prepping for what I do. I was yeah. being prepped. When I was a playwright, and I never, it never occurred to me, somebody once asked in an interview what the, how being a playwright prepared me for, for being a child. I said, well, they had nothing to do with each other. And they did, in retrospect. But I, was, I used to, to, to write to music, and I would put the same piece of music on loop for hours and what I was doing was inducing trance. And then I would sit there and let it come through. And that was how I wrote for years. Yeah. Um, and the idea of embodying character and allowing a voice to come through wasn't foreign for me. What I didn't know until, again, I was, I was, I was reading for somebody. People started to show up to want to talk to the guides. And that's how my practice started. And I was reading for some woman, and she asked about her father, and she gave me his name, and I heard, my eyes were closed, and I heard her gasp, and I I said, what's wrong? She said, oh my God, you started to look just like him. And that's when I found out that I could do it again and again and again. I could step into people and be, I, I I was becoming people. It's a freaky thing. This TV show that I was on a few years ago called The Unexplained, where they had me just read for people that I had never met. There was a woman who showed up, and she was a lovely woman, you know, and she said, I'm having issues. I said, how can I help you? I'm having issues with my, she said, my husband and my son. That's the information I had. And I tried to tune into her, and she was so frightened, and she was in a stranger's apartment with a camera crew, so there was reason for her to be nervous. But I went to the kid. I said, give me your son's name. And I stepped into the sun, and I somatized his cerebral palsy. And they oh. intercut me with the kid. So started like- yeah, I mean, the whole thing happened. My yeah. hands clawed up. I lost my hearing. 
they didn't know if the boy was deaf and I didn't know what I was doing. And I keep, I kept saying, you can hear me, you can hear me. And she said, I can't. And I'm thinking, what the hell is this? This is a 13 year old. Why can't she hear him? And then he kept saying, get me out of here, get me out of here, get me out of my body. And it turned out the boy's never spoken a word in his life. I, I don't even know if he's still with us. It was a heartbreaking thing. But the, the mother had never heard the boy before. But I believe or I hope that she was helped in some way because the kid was aware at a level. And the awareness was something that she had lost faith in. You understand? I mean, he was having an experience, not the normal experience we have. You know, and there was an odd period after that aired where I was reading for a lot of parents who would call or, you know, Skype or whatever with special needs. And it was fascinating because I was able to access the kids in ways that perhaps they weren't as adept at doing. Primarily kids with autism, things with that, that weren't using language in, in obvious ways, but can still be connected with and heard. Yeah, I think I, I think I also heard you talk about tuning into somebody who was in a coma or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's. Do you find that people in comas or kids with autism or kids, you know, people who externally appear to be quite checked out uh, in one way or another, actually on some level are very cogent and coherent and, and clear? They just can't express it. I think it depends at what level you, you move to them on. If I were to tune into you, I could tune into you with a personality self. I could tune into you in a higher way and, and hear from you what's really going on, why you're still afraid of spiders. I don't just choose something. <laughs> you know, what the causation is, things like that I'm able to do in my, in my work. But yeah, I'm, I seem to be okay as long as there's still a body attached. I don't call myself a spiritual medium, so I'm not the guy to tune into your great uncle on the other side. He may come through. It's happened when I worked, but only in relationship to something really unresolved, you know, that's, that's blocking somebody in their growth, because my work is specific. So yeah. the living are easy for me for some reason. It's your specialty. Yeah. And I'll do the same thing. Here's a question from Mary. Uh -huh. uh, she asks, I'm wondering if there are any aspects of the teachings that you just can't get on board with, or if over time everything has come to be known fully for you. I'm going to put it this way. There's a, there's a quote attributed to, to Helen Shookman, who was the channel for The Course in Miracles. Right. And she said, I don't believe it, but I know it's true. And I oh, yeah. totally, I'm totally with that one. So there's nothing that they've ever said that actually rings false. And there's usually energy that accompanies what they teach. So every time there's a new attunement, we're actually able to have an experience of it and to feel it and to sort of see how we're being asked to work. And so it's tangible enough that I can be supported. The stuff that they're talking about now around how our consciousness is, is, is informing the manifest world is challenging for me personally. And I, I've had an odd relationship with the body most of my life, you know, and they're talking very much about the divinity that's inherent in form and the realization of that. And the idea here, I suppose, if you really want to go there, would be the idea of the word made flesh. And I am completely challenged by that. You know, it's not my stuff. But when they break it down, and this is where they're starting to go, I believe, 
there's a logic to it that I can't really abandon. They're talking about the limitations that we've all ascribed to culturally about what's possible. And this whole teaching of beyond the known is beyond what we've, we've agreed to. The metaphor that they've been using at times seems to be something like, you know, we're punching holes in this ceiling that we thought was there to find out that there's so much more beyond it. But the collective agreement has been to limitation and who we are. Now, I will say this because it's an easy one. I'll shut up. You know, the idea, there are things that I do now that are somewhat normal to me that can be proven out and shouldn't be so. But if I can do it, that means they can be done. And I'm really not that special. And there are people that are doing things that I would never probably dream of doing. When I first started healing, this old Irish lady that I studied with showed me palpably in my body that there were things possible that I hadn't known could be so. And that changed my life experientially. It took one person to say this is so and show it to me that opened me up to possibilities beyond what I would ever have begun to claim. Yeah. You know, one thing that was always fascinated me is the real genuine genius trendsetters who kind of break like they're icebreakers. They, they break the ice for all the other ships to follow. Like Elon Musk, for instance. I mean, he shot a Tesla to Mars the other day. Uh, and, uh, you know, in addition to all the other stuff he's doing. So it's like, what, who are these people? I mean, they, they, it seems to me they're kind of they probably don't even realize it, but they're being guided and energized by some. Well, you know, kind his of mother was my nutritionist for a period of time. Okay. You know, she lives in New York City. I don't know if she still lives in New York City. I don't think it, it quite worked, but she was she was quite a formidable lady. And I, I understand. I don't know that they were even close. I re- I didn't know that this was. I didn't even know who he was back in those days. He was probably still in graduate school. So yeah, I, I think that's true. You know, I think that I don't know. I, I, I just feel like my job is to show up for whatever the hell this is. And if people are being helped through this, that's terrific. You know what I mean? But what my role is or what your role is here, I can't, I have no clue. And maybe somebody who hears this a hundred years from now, that's going to make all the difference. I have no clue. We all have our roles. Here's a question from Shannon in Annapolis, Maryland, I presume. Uh, For those who are sensitive to the energy of other people and find it difficult to feel close to family members, friends, and even cohabiting with a partner due to this physical sensitivity, this is a good question. Is there a solution for this dilemma? I don't know that I'm the one to answer this. They're saying yes. They're saying know who you are and stop being part of the answer and stop being frightened of, of the manifestations of, of others of what they can do, and the fear of what they can do to you. This is still fear. This is still fear in, a form, in another form. So I'm, I'm energetically sensitive, and I don't like crowds, and you'll never see me at a rock concert, and my idea of a quiet hell is, is a packed, loud restaurant. You know, I just don't want to be there. And when I'm not working, I do tend to, to hibernate a bit. You know, I'm, I, I like my privacy and my peace, and I'm, I'm not looking for, for the big stuff. But I do know that my responses are my own. I, uh, the one experience that I have that I can share with this, with this person with this question is, you know, when people are pissed off at me I, or when they're talking trash about me, I feel it. 
Um, and I don't necessarily it remotely. I mean, oh, it's all remote. Yeah, I don't know right. who it is half the time. But it's literally you, you hear the old, you know, the, that little saying your ears must have been ringing. Yeah, it's real. But for me, it's like a fork going into my ear. And yeah. it's it's it, usually with a male. It's the right ear, female left ear. It's usually the case. And when this first, you know, the first time I was interviewed on a, on, a, on a cable show, I was excited and I watched it. And the guy who did the interview had me channeling and him and he broke up all these clips into like three minute YouTube things with these headlines like, you know, watch Paul selling channel on ET realities. And there's this big man rocking back and forth, whispering and repeating himself. I look completely crazy and I know it and I could feel it. I could feel the stuff and the YouTube comments were coming in and I was feeling it energetically. And I said to the guys, if you want me to do this, why are you letting this happen? And the response was, well, as long as you care what people think about you, this is going to be an issue. It was my issue. But I really did have my ear up to the wall with the glass. I wanted to know. And so when I can uninvest in that, I don't have that experience. It still happens, but it, it hasn't happened in that way because I don't think I'm attaching at that level enough. Yeah, maybe you're just getting kind of like – Getting used to it. I mean, imagine being president of the United States and, and all the criticism and everything you get, whatever president we're talking about, they, they just get hammered all the time. And I think after a while, you must get somewhat inured to it. I think people that are at that level of visibility probably have some, you've got to have some heavy layer of protection operating. Um, I'm a bit of an open field, you right. know, and many of us that are empathic are. And I think learning how to operate with this is, is, is challenging in some ways. There's no question about that, but it's also the gift, you know, it's exciting as well to learn how to navigate it. I have a friend who um, many years ago was teaching meditation in Louisiana. And uh, one morning he was sitting in his meditation and all these horrible demonic sort of scary things were coming out of me. He thought, what is going on? And then later on, he realized that an article had just been published in a local paper saying that, you know, he, he's doing this. He's a, he's the devil and he's, you know, is doing this demonic thing and he shouldn't be in our community and all this stuff. And everybody was reading that and sending out these vibes and they're, they're coming to him. So we got a little sidetracked, maybe. We were, we were kind of walking through your books, and we, we went one and two, we jumped to four, we maybe did a little bit of three. Let's pick that up in our remaining time and just um, wrap up whatever you feel is significant that's come out all these years. Well, I'll, I'll talk about three, because that's an easy one. That's the Book of Knowing and Worth. And um, the Book of Knowing and Worth really speaks about our own unwillingness to claim our birthright as a divine being, to claim our own relationship with the divine. It really is almost essential, I think, for where they want to take us next. The next book was the Book of Mastery, and that's the beginning of a trilogy. And the Book of Mastery, in some ways, is the unpacking of the claim, I know who I am. It's the true self. It's the teaching of the true self as who you are. Um, the Book of Truth, in some ways, I think, is the unpacking of the teaching of I know what I am. They're really beginning to look at manifestation and collective agreement in this book, the things that we're all in agreement to that are operating in limitation and how to begin to move through that. And they speak about the energy of truth as a vibratory field that's present now. And they say at the end of the Book of Mastery, there was this odd thing in the book, and they said, 
at the end of the book, okay, so if there's something that's still not moving, you know, you can write it down on a piece of paper and imagine giving it to us. And I objected to that because that sounded to me like magical thinking and an easy out. And maybe they're trying to get out of a hard question. And their response was no. They said, um, you know, because in truth, a lie cannot be held. And we operate in truth. And everything that you've written down is not who you truly are. So the teaching of the book of truth is really the expounding of that, and truth a lie cannot be held. And they really said this, and this was channeled a couple of years ago now, I guess, that everything that's been hidden is coming to the surface to be seen in a new way. And we are seeing that. Society. Yeah, we're seeing that, yeah. And they're also talking about the structures that we've supported that are based in deceit will not be what they were. Elaborate on that a little bit, because a lot of people would would be a little pessimistic, uh, since a lot of the structures that you know we don't consider highly enlightened seem to be doing just fine. I hear wait and see, you know, on that. But the the word that I hear is renown, renown, realized, realized, renown, and in a way, in a new way. They're saying everything can be renown in higher octave, in a higher octave, and that's your that's your opportunity. And they're saying, and that's your opportunity. To continue to recreate through your fear, through your fear, or your blame, or your blame, or to lift what you see, or to lift what you see to its inherent true nature, to its inherent true nature. You create these things. You create these things. Let me close upon you. They are not being foisted upon you. If you can see them, if you can see them, you can claim them. You can claim them or know them or know them in a new way, in a new way, period, in the same period. So that's that. What about intractable problems like, for instance, the Arab-Israeli conflict and, uh, you know, various other things like that that politicians and diplomats have been working on for decades and that seem to be going nowhere? Um, you know, there, if we could um, jump ahead 30 years, would we find that these things have been resolved? And is there any way of uh, – it's hard to imagine how they're going to be. Um, I mean – you know what I'm, where I'm going with I this? I kind of do. I mean, what I hear, I mean, the guides have never really read on a political event. There's a really interesting channeling that's up online that was done in Richmond three days before the last presidential election. Um, yeah, yeah, it was a channeling, and it was called um, Great Change. And they really did. And I was surprised by the outcome of the election, as many, many people were. But the, the, the channeling really sort of talks about what to expect, and it's been an accurate teaching. In terms of this, the outcome the level, of the No, not the level, not, not the outcome of the election, and there's no names, but they said, you know, your idea of, you know, your idea of choice is, do I'll have the milk versus the cream in my coffee. And they say, what you're going to be really looking at is what happens when the whole table tips over. It's a whole other level of of of, of, life, of of change that's really coming. So, I mean, I haven't revisited that in a while. But when when you ask the question, the answer I heard was choice. You're all choosing these things. You are all choosing these things. They're saying call it intractable if you wish, and you reinforce the very thing that you don't want. If you want an intractable situation, 
question, continue to confirm it as such. You are participatory here, everyone, as everyone is. Realize potential. Realize the potential, the potential for change, the potential for change. That is always the first step. That is always the first step without potential for change. Without the potential for change, you deny the possibility. You deny the possibility. The same possibility that is already present, that is already present. That's the first step. That's the first step. Then claim it as so. Then claim it as so and receive the outcome and receive the outcome. You're always claiming manifestation. You are always claiming manifestation into manifestation. What you expect, what you expect. You know this. Do you know this? What you expect, we get. What you expect is what you get. If you want war, you can have it. If you want war, you can have it. You are the ones who choose this. You are the ones who choose this period. And they're saying, period. Hmm. Um, I mean, I've always expected that there's going to be a huge change in the world. Uh, I remember back in the early 80s, I read a book called Prophecies and Predictions, Everyone's Guide to the Coming Changes. And the woman who wrote it took all the prophecies of all kinds of ancient cultures from around the world and correlated them with events that have already taken place. And then it kind of extrapolated uh, with their further predictions as to when and how things were going to continue to change. But that, you know, that was early 80s. And even in the 70s, we were talking about this, this kind of stuff. And now it's, you know, 40 something years later. So do the guides ever give a timeline as to, you know, I mean, as to the pace and, and duration of this transition? Here it's happening now. You know, we're, we're, it's happening now. But in terms of do I get a year? No, I don't. I never, I never have. And this is this is a generational thing. I mean, what I've gotten from them really is, you know, we're paving the way for what's to come. We're creating the opening for those who, who are coming in, you know, to follow. So um, the metaphor that they've used at times is of going through the underbrush with a machete. That's what we're doing right now. What we're doing is we're clearing a path for those who follow, yeah. you know, and it's, 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 it's what we choose as far as I understand. That's what John the Baptist said he was doing for Jesus. <laughs> okay. Is there anything else? I mean, I'm sure there's, there's, we could talk for hours about all the stuff that's in your books, but as you scan now the course of our conversation and, and also the course of your writing career or, or stenography career. Um, is there anything important there that has come out in your books that we haven't touched upon in this interview that you'd like to just sort of say? Not that I can think of. I mean, the newest book that'll be out in, in November, they're calling it the Book of Freedom. And um, the idea of freedom actually encompasses the idea of being free of, of our attachments to everything that we've inherited which includes our, our comprehension of time. You know, these are all structures that we're in agreement to, and they're talking about moving beyond those agreements. You know, they say the true self or the divine self can know itself in time, but exists beyond it, you know, isn't bound by the clock and the calendar. And, you know, they're supporting us, I, I hope, in, in, in coming to that level of comprehension about who we truly are. So I, seems I think it like, seems like that's what they're doing. I hope so. I mean, I think this is up for the individual to, to, to have their own experience with this yeah. really, you know, I'm, I'm not the best, I'm not the best teacher of this. You know, I'm, I'm, I seem to be an adept being in order to take the dictation, but my, my rendering of it or my, my explanation of it is still limited by, by my, 
you know, lack of understanding at times. I do my oh, best with oh, the material. Yeah. I, mean, I heard a great metaphor the other day. I forget who it was that said it, but it was that, you know, they, they saying, well, the microphone never says, oh, I gave such a great speech, you know. I mean, it's not the microphone giving the speech. The microphone is just an instrument through which the speech can be given. So, and you seem to be quite humble and not, you know, taking personal credit for all this stuff. You just you you, you have things in proper. It's a high quality microphone. Your high quality microphone, <laughs> maybe a Sennheiser or something. <laughs> yeah. You know, my 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 own personal requirements are really simple. You know, I want a nice relationship. I want a body that works, and I don't want to worry. That's all. Everything else can can handle itself. So. Yeah. yeah. So it sounds like you're a pretty busy guy. You're, you're traveling a lot, giving workshops and everything all over the country, all over the world. Um, you want to give a, a, people a, an idea of the scope of your activities in terms of stuff that they could plug into? My website just has my name. It's paulselig.com, S-E-L-I-G. There's a calendar there, but I do, um, I do a live stream teaching pretty much every Wednesday. And uh, it's really the extension of the group that met in my apartment for so many years, which was the laboratory for the work. So the guides are always teaching forward and taking people's questions. So that's, you know, Wednesdays, eight o'clock Eastern. Um, and we see, you know, we send the recording out for people who can't be there in person, you know, within 24 hours or something. And along with a transcript that follows shortly thereafter for people who cannot, can't, can't abide the whispering and repeating, which I can, I can understand. And, um, and I do workshops all over. So I may be, you know, upcoming workshops. I'm going to be in Boulder soon and, um, Chicago, New York this weekend. That workshop will be live streamed wherever people are. It's, it's pretty much nonstop two or three times a month. I'm on the road. So. So basically, they just have to come to your website and they can f figure all that out. Yeah. We also, I should just mention, I don't mention this very often, but we have a page on, on backgap.com called Geographic Listings, I think. And it's a thing where if you type in a, a location such as New York, then you begin, then you see a listing of everybody I've interviewed who is, is, is going to do something in New York or and then it works its way out in a radius. So you might see Ithaca, New York or something or, you know, Philadelphia as you, as you go farther down the list. So, you know, people might want to check that out sometime. And if you want to register your things in there, Irene will send you the information. All right. Well, thanks, Paul. I've enjoyed this. I'll be, you know, putting up a page on BatGap for this interview, as I always do. And people can, you know, they'll read about you. There'll be links to your books. There'll be a link to your website and so on. And um, well, while you're there, those who are watching this, uh, you know, if you haven't been to the site before, just check out the various menus and, and what we have to offer. You can, you know, sign up for the audio podcast or for the email notification of new interviews and, you know, whatever you find of interest there. So thanks for listening or watching. We had a few technical difficulties today, but uh, it's because I have a new computer, but I will get those sorted out by the next one, which will be next Thursday. Appreciate everyone's attention. Thank you, Paul. Thanks for having me.